My name is Jeffrey Sidoris, and this is Iteration 47. A number of you have asked why I'm selling what review after review calls the best APS-C camera on the market today to buy a two-year-old Micro Four Thirds camera that I've already bought and returned once before. Well, it's complicated, but if you'll give me a little bit of rope, I promise to try and wrap it up without hanging myself. What camera should I buy? It's a question I get asked a lot, and I try to stay pretty consistent with my advice. If you were an On Taking Pictures listener, you know I could answer that question for everyone but myself. My search for a new camera became an epic saga and the butt of jokes for years on the show. For others, however, my typical answer went something like this. There is no definitive right or wrong camera because everyone's use case is different. First decide what you want to use it for. What kinds of photographs do you want to make? Then decide what features you think you need to make that happen and see what cameras have those features in your price range. It sounds pretty simple on paper, and for a lot of photographers, other than me, that's exactly how they choose their gear. But that advice leaves out feel, and that's where it gets tricky for me. When I bought my X-Pro1, I was coming from a Nikon D300, which felt like it was made for my hands. And as much as I loved the way the X-Pro1 looked and the images that came out of it, I initially hated the way it felt in my hands. Don't get me wrong, I love the feel of the cold metal every time I picked it up, but actually shooting with it was not a great experience. My pinky rubbed against the bottom plate, and the position of my thumb was just wrong, and it made the camera feel out of balance. But after attaching the Fuji body grip and a thumbs-up thumb grip and soft shutter release, it was like holding a completely different camera. And that's when I really fell in love with it. But over the course of the next two or so years, my subject matter, my use case, if you will, began to change. I found myself shooting more people on the streets rather than merely the streets themselves, and the less than stellar autofocus of the X-Pro1 paired with the 35mm 1.4 I was using, which is a big chunk of glass, just wasn't able to keep up with my eye and I was missing shots. Now, I know there are some of you who might be thinking, well, why not just zone focus? And that's a valid question. But zone focusing works best when your subject is a fairly consistent distance from the camera so that they stay in acceptable depth of field. And that wasn't my case. For those of you unfamiliar with zone focusing, basically you're pre-focusing the camera to a specific distance. If you're on the street, that might be 10 or 15 feet. You then set the aperture to give you enough depth of field wiggle room to capture subjects that land within those parameters. So on the X-Pro1 with a 35 millimeter lens, if I focus at 10 feet at f8, a subject that's anywhere from about 7 to 16 feet from the camera should be in relatively sharp focus, providing your shutter speed is high enough to freeze any motion. Anyway, I love the quality of the files from the X-Pro1, so when I started looking for a new camera, I naturally looked to Fuji, specifically the X-Pro2 and the X-T2. And the only reason I really even considered the X-T2 was the fact that I'm a left-eye shooter, and until I got the X-Pro1, I used my right eye to keep my bearings when I was shooting. But the viewfinder placement on these rangefinder-style cameras like the X-Pro1 means that my right eye is basically useless. While the autofocus on the X-T2 and X-Pro2 was definitely a step forward, for me at least, the image quality was almost a step back. And I've said this many times before, there's something about the 16-megapixel X-Trans sensor in the X-Pro1 that is just magical. If you've ever used one, you know what I mean. 
Around the same time that I was looking at the X-Pro2 and X-T2, I had started looking into Micro Four Thirds, mainly the Panasonic G9. A few OTP listeners suggested Olympus. And while I love the design of the EM1 Mark II, two grand for the body was just more money than I wanted to spend. Still, I loved the way it looked, and at least on paper, the specs looked really impressive, particularly the high-resolution mode. If it worked, I thought it could be a terrific solution for scanning film and for photographing my paintings for print. And as a side note, I actually ended up testing the EM1 Mark II against the Phase One IQ3. I'll put a link in the show notes. I think you might be surprised at the results. So I emailed Olympus and asked if they would send me an EM1 Mark II to try out, fully expecting them to say no if they responded at all, but surprisingly, they said yes. I'd never shot with a Micro Four Thirds camera, so I really didn't know what to expect. But my first impression of the Olympus was how amazing it felt in the hand. It felt every bit as good as the Nikon D300 I had before my Fuji, but in a 20% smaller body. The Oli, and, and this is something I've said before, it just feels dense. It's solid, almost like my Nikon F2. All right, maybe not that solid, but it does feel precise. And as I said, the ergonomics are superb. Buttons and dials feel logically placed and are all the right size and shape, at least for my hands. And it's fast, really fast. Over the course of the next month that I had it, I shot it a ton and it made me, maybe not made me, but it allowed me to just have fun making photographs. So while I was shooting away with this Micro Four Thirds camera, which really is a brilliant camera by any measure, the camera conversation really started to shift. High ISO, dual card slots, and full frame were the must-have features everyone was talking about. And I started doing some fairly comprehensive testing of the EM1 Mark II against the X-T2, mostly at 32 and 6400 ISO, and I really started to spin out about it, to the point where one of my photographer friends asked how often I shoot at 32 or 64. Never, I said, or at least very rarely. Well, then what do you care what it looks like? That's not your use case. He was right, of course, but for some reason, I just couldn't get out from under it. I couldn't take my own advice, advice that I had dispensed with some regularity over the past several years. Oli, Fuji, Fuji, Oli, back and forth for months this went. And just when I thought I had it sorted, Fuji released the X-T3, which promised better everything. And long story only slightly shorter, I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. It was the new bright, shiny object, and I convinced myself that this was the camera for me. So back the X-T2 went, back the EM-1 Mark II went, and I bought the X-T3. That was late November 2018. I have taken the X-T3 out of the house exactly three times. The first real shoot I did with it was photographing a recording session in Massachusetts, and I just couldn't find my rhythm with it. The X-T3 is a brilliant camera. It delivers on virtually every promise and lives up to nearly every glowing review. And this time next year, through Fuji's Kaizen firmware updates, it will likely be even better than it is now. But I just don't like the way it feels in my hand. I don't like the button placement, I don't like the dials, and I found myself missing the near-limitless customization options offered by the Olympus. But hey, at least it looked amazing at 3,200 ISO, right? It's safe to say that this whole saga is about more than a camera, and that fact became crystal clear in a conversation with Adrian. The months of back and forth had zero to do with hardware and everything to do with who was going to show up to use it. On one hand, I'm this pixel-accurate, color-obsessed designer who prefers elements laid out just so on one of Mueller-Brockman's grids. 
On the other hand, I'm a painter, maybe even an artist, whose work is fueled by an endless stream of often messy, happy accidents. And somehow the camera became the tool at the center of this existential struggle. I have yet to ever really answer the first question I ask others looking for camera advice, and that is, what kind of photographs do you want to make? With my own answer to the question nebulous at best, it becomes unclear who the tool really needs to satisfy, the pixel peeper or the messy artist. In talking through it with a friend, a seemingly simple question was raised. Which one do you want to be? Well, I've been primarily the designer for the past 20-odd years, I replied. I think I'd like to give the artist some room to run. Sounds like a good idea, he said. And so I finally took my own advice and rebought the Olympus. And while on paper it may not have the specs of the new Fuji, or the new Canon, or the new Sony, it makes me want to get out and shoot. And I have finally realized that that is more important to me than megapixels or bit rates. I guess the takeaway here is really nothing you haven't heard before. The camera industry is driven by specs, and while specs matter, some more than others, many of them become little more than buzzwords that we end up hanging our buying decisions on. Camera bodies typically don't change much from one model year to the next, and even if they do, you need to decide what features are important to you, and more importantly, why they're important. It doesn't matter in the least what Tony Northrup or Frodo's Photo or Ted Forbes or anybody else has to say about a camera if it ultimately doesn't meet your needs. And if you're buying a camera based solely on the opinion of one of these reviewers, or even the general consensus for that matter, you still aren't addressing your individual and probably very specific use case. I know that's exactly what happened to me with the months of testing and back and forth between the Fujis and the Olympus. I bought into the hype around the camera, rather than looking at whether or not it was the right tool for me, and more importantly, who would be showing up to use it. In the show notes, you'll find links to a few things I thought you might like, including a fascinating behind-the-scenes interview with climber Alex Honold and adventure photographer Jimmy Chin and his wife Elizabeth on their Oscar-nominated documentary, Free Solo. The film follows Honold as he climbs the 3,000-plus-foot sheer granite face of El Capitan without any safety ropes to catch him. It's kind of terrifying, but it's fascinating nonetheless. Also, if you dig seeing how the special effects in your favorite movies are done, follow movies.effects on Instagram. The feed features side-by-side photos and before and after clips so you can get a sense of what it takes to bring these big-budget fantasies to life. It's a really cool feed. The last item is either really cool or really creepy, depending on your perspective. Ukrainian artist Olga Kamenetskaya transforms overly made-up toy dolls into hyper-realistic-looking figurines. According to the article on My Modern Met, quote, Kamenetskaya strips the doll's makeup and opts for bushy hair, freckles, and even wrinkles in their skin. The results are so lifelike that you'd expect to see these people walking down the street, end quote. It just goes to show that there is something out there for everyone. Subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything to get iterations, in-between, process-driven, and special one-off conversations all in one feed. You can find it in your favorite podcast app. And just a reminder, if you are subscribed to any of the individual shows, those show feeds will be going away on April 1st. So do please subscribe to everything so you don't miss anything. Connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at Jeffrey Sedoris. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S or at JeffreySedoris.com. And as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here. I really do appreciate it. And I'll talk to you on the next one.